Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. I'm reminded of um, how thankful I am that we get to gather corporately without the fear of persecution. So I just pray this morning as we continue to enter into um, more worship of you through the reading of your word and through teaching. Father, I just pray that you would soften our hearts, um, open our ears and open our eyes to how your Holy Spirit is inviting us um, to grow and learn deeper and more things about you. I pray that you would grace um, Todd's mouth with the things to say. And um, I just pray that we'd be attentive listeners, God, not just to um, leave from this place the same, but that we would truly be changed, be transformed by the renewing of our minds, um, to take what we learn inside of these walls to impact the community and the world around us for the name of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, do open your Bibles, because we really are. We're going to go through the book of Jonah together. Um, it is a minor prophet, and uh, as we've gone through the Old Testament, the Old Testament's kind of hard even for us to wrap our minds around, because the language that's used there and even some of the stories are just, they're just kind of foreign to us. And then you get to the minor prophets, and it's kind of like, man, if the first part of the Old Testament was hard to wrap my mind around, the minor prophets really proved to be so. And Jonah's one of those books that Many of us are familiar with, like we kind of know the story, um, but we don't, like we don't really know it. Um, and the great thing is Jonah's short. It's four chapters, four very short chapters, and it's structured in a way that like really once you kind of understand what's going on and how the author is writing the book, it's actually a very complex book, but it's simple in its complexity. And so uh, as I was preparing for this, I thought we should just go through this together um, some of us have been reading through a uh, journey through the Bible or read the Bible or, you know, uh, year of the Bible, whatever we're calling it. And it's like we're reading, but like we're struggling to grasp it a little bit. So my hope is, is that as we go through this, uh, we won't just be like giving you a fish, but teaching you how to fish a little bit as well, how to, how to read and what to look for. So especially in this first chapter um, I'm going to encourage you, especially if you have your own Bible, and there's ways to do this on the, on the Bible app as well, but I'm going to invite you to grab a pen or a pencil or something, and maybe you've never done this before, but I'm going to encourage you to write in your Bible. We're going we're gonna to do some things. The, the book of Jonah is like this book that as you read it, you're like, this book's kind of crazy. And in some ways, like you read the story and you think the story is a bit absurd. And the truth of the matter is, it is. And the author intends us to grasp on to that absurdity. Uh, the book of Jonah is a bit satirical in the way it's written, and we will see evidence for that in the language that's used in chapter 1. And so there's a couple things I want you to do. Number one, as we go through this, I want you to look for words that are like hyperbole-type words, right? So great and big and raging, um, words like that. And whenever you see one of the words... I'm just going to invite you to circle it, okay? There's something else that the author is intending to, a little like literary form that he's using to make a point as well, and that's this idea of comparison and contrast. And so as we read through this, you don't necessarily have to write anything unless you do it in the margins, but 
I want you to think about, like, we're going to see different characters. We're going to see Jonah, and we're going to see sailors in Jonah chapter 1. And I want you to think about the comparison and the contrast between, uh, in particular, Jonah and the sailors. And then we're also going to see this comparison between Jonah in the first two chapters and Jonah in the second two chapters of the book as well. So that's a lot, but I'm going to kind of lead us through that. And then there's one other thing that I'm going to have us do in just a moment as well. But let's begin uh, with Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to read through this. You follow along. If you see words like great or big or raging, um, anything like that, like I said, I'm just going to invite you to circle them. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city, there's your first circle, the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now before we go any further, it's good to know Jonah, this book doesn't tell us much about Jonah, but if you've been doing Year of the Bible, uh, all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah's mentioned briefly as a prophet. And it's likely we're, we're reading about the same person here. Uh, Nineveh, on the other hand, is this great city. And when it says that the city is wicked, like if, if the book of Jonah understates anything, it's the wickedness of Nineveh. Nineveh's in the capital of Assyria. And Assyria is this growing like superpower within the region that's actually known for terrorizing all of the nations around it. And in fact, if you've been reading, you know at the end of 2 Kings, it's the, uh, it's the Assyrians that come in and ultimately overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And set them in exile. Assyria is the enemy to the Israelites. It's really the enemy to all the nations surrounding it. So when it talks about this wickedness, it's talking about uh, like a country that's, that's known to be full of terrorists. And I mean, that's kind of the idea that's being set out there. And like I said, we'll eventually conquer the northern, uh, northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, God comes and says to Jonah, go to this great city and preach against it. Verse 2, uh, the word but, anytime that shows up, that's important. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, the other thing I want you to do as we go through chapter 1, I've asked you to circle any of these like great or big or raging, those types of words. I want you to box in any word that you see that speaks to some sort of dissent. So Jonah decides he's going to run away from the Lord, and we're going to find out why Jonah runs away from God later. But when he does, from this point on in chapter 1, Jonah's life takes a, a deep descent. Every time you see the word descent or down, I want you to box it in. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying for the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, this is interesting because we talked about the entire book of Jonah set up for us to like look at Jonah and think, what Jonah is doing is absolutely absurd. It's foolish. And so for any Israelite that's reading this text, and for us as well, we just heard John, and we didn't prepare this, but we just heard John read from Psalm 139, right? This is a psalm of David that any Israelite's going to know that certainly Jonah knew as well. The psalm that says, if I go to the heights, there you are. Where can I go to flee from you? If I go to the heights, there you are. 
If I go down to the depths, and we're going to see Jonah do this, there you are as well. Or if I go to the other end of the sea, which is essentially what Jonah is doing here, he's going the exact opposite direction that God's called him to go. He says, even there, you are with me. Where can I flee from your presence? This idea that Jonah is going to flee from God's presence, we should read it. It's a clue for us. Jonah's living in an absurdity. Then the Lord sent a great, there's another word to circle, a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm. Again, this this big word. It's not just a storm. It's such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone where? Down, below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep, deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all of this great trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? Because they knew he was running away from the Lord because he, is, he had already told them so. Now, it's fascinating to me here that Jonah is, it's not like he's accidentally running away from God, right? He's intentionally doing it. He knows he's doing it as he's running. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to, to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah, rather than taking responsibility, puts the responsibility back on the sailors. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. Again, instead of Jonah taking ownership, he puts it on the sailors. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to roll back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly, again, down, deep, Jonah was in in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then we'll move on in just a moment. There's this idea of the the greatness of everything that's going on, the absurdity of the whole thing, the the absurdity of the idea that Jonah's trying to flee from God's presence. There's also this comparison and contrast that's going on between Jonah and the sailors. Uh, We see that Jonah's told to go to Nineveh, but he goes to Tarshish. This contrast between God's intent, God's will for Jonah, and Jonah's intent and will for himself. 
And then with the sailors, we see the sailors like are in this great fear because of what's going on. And Jonah's down in the belly of the ship, fast asleep, calm. He knows exactly what's going on. We also see this contrast between Jonah's like defiance and flippancy with God, right? Jonah knows he's running away. He knows he's disobeying God. And in some ways, he's like choosing death over being present with what God's intending to do through him. And we see that contrasted to the sailors who are living in this great, the words used, used here is fear, but it's the awe of the power of God. And because of that, the sailors of all people are repentant. We've got this prophet who's actively disobeying God and these sailors that, that are serving other gods that begin to recognize the one true God and are repentant as a result of this. In this story, it's interesting to me, Jonah seems to be in charge, right? Jonah's choosing to be in charge of what's happening from the very beginning. Jonah goes and buys a fare to get on this ship to go the opposite way of the way God's told him to go, thinking that he's in charge until the storm hits. And then when the storm hits, Jonah, rather than dealing with the storm, decides he's simply going to check out because he knows how this is going to end, and he still wants to flee God. If anybody's going to know how the story's going to end, it's a prophet. If there's anybody that knows you can't flee the presence of God, it's a prophet. The story is absurd. What Jonah's doing is utter foolishness. It makes no sense. So God provides and sends this great fish to swallow Jonah, and he's down in the fish. And from inside the fish, Jonah becomes repentant. He recognizes God has delivered him from certain death and rescued him, even if it's in this bizarre sort of way. And so in Jonah chapter 2, we have this great prayer of praise. Uh, and in some ways, I don't know, it's kind of left for us to decide. Uh, it might be a prayer of repentance as well. We're not going to read this whole thing, but I'm going to read just the beginning and the end of it so you get an idea. And as Jonah's praying this prayer, if we were to read it, if you've been reading the Psalms every day as we've gone through year of the Bible, a lot of this language is going to sound familiar. Jonah knows his texts. He knows the Psalms. And so when he's praying, he's praying, uh, he's repeating the Psalms that we've been reading uh, so far throughout the year. Jonah says this, In my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And skip down to the second half of verse 6. But you, Lord my God, brought me up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn, around, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love, I love that line. I love this book. Okay, so what happens next? What's Jonah going to do with this? Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, right above it, you can just write 1 colon 1. Because basically, we are right back to where we started in Jonah's story. Jonah's been disobedient in chapter 1. 
God provides a way out from Jonah, delivers him in Jonah chapter 2. And now in Jonah chapter 3, at the very beginning, we are right back to where we started. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave to you. This time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, halfway through it, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Very short sermon Jonah's preaching here. Forty more days, and then Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites do this amazing thing. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The idea of sackcloth marks an idea of repentance, of mourning for what they had done. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet... might yet relent from, and with compassion, sorry, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So what's Jonah's response to this? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now, everywhere in chapter 4, the anger is mentioned. I want you to just underline that as well. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And here we're going to find out the truth of Jonah's heart. Why did Jonah, in in Jonah chapter 1, when God came to him and told him to come preach a word of judgment of all things to Nineveh, right? A prophet from Israel would have loved that idea. Nineveh is wicked. I would love to go to Nineveh and proclaim the destruction of Assyria on them. But Jonah knows something. He knows God's heart. He he has a sense of what God's going to do. And down deep, the idea of who God is, is troubling to Jonah. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said? I knew all along. When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall. This is what I tried to avoid by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Ah, poor Jonah, right? Man, this is the worst. I'd rather be dead. He sounds like a six-year-old. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I love this. He is like, this is full-out six-year-old pouting going on here. 
Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. God's like, okay, Jonah, cool off here. And Jonah's happy for a moment. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Jonah wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Oh, this is the worst. But God said to Jonah again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? We never see an answer to this question. The question's asked twice. Is it right for you to be angry? And we don't see an answer. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have great concern for the city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The book of Jonah is fascinating to me because typically we read the prophets and as we're reading the minor prophets and as we go, as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, the prophets are typically there as we're reading it to point out the foolishness of others or for us as readers to point out the foolishness in our own lives. But in this case, the prophet himself is the subject of the foolishness. And we, the readers, are invited to play the role of the prophet, pointing out the foolishness in the life of Jonah. The the tables have turned for us. And so as we read this book, it's actually, I mean, it's this crazy, complex book where all of these things are going on. And there's a deep truth for us to get. But in the complexity, there's a simplicity, right? Jonah chapter 1, we see Jonah as disobedient. And in chapter 2, we see Jonah's grateful response to God's mercy for him. God delivers Jonah, and Jonah responds with this this lovely psalm and prayer of praise and deliverance and repentance. Chapter 1, Jonah disobedient. Chapter 2, God's grateful response to God's mercy for him. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah is obedient And Jonah chapter 4, we see Jonah's angry response to God's mercy for others. As we're reading this, and if you've been reading through uh, the year of the Bible, if we spend a little bit of time to pause and think, we begin to see that Jonah's story itself is a representation of Israel's story throughout the Old Testament. God delivers Israel, and Israel responds with these these prayers of praise and of promise, but Israel's deliverance from the very beginning all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 is for the purpose and the benefit of the entire world. And we see throughout the Old Testament that Israel fails over and over and over again, not to just be blessed by God, but to be a blessing to all of the other nations. And so in Jonah, we see not only Jonah's sin, but we see Israel's sin as well. And as we're reading this, we don't only see Jonah's sin and Israel's sin, but we begin to realize that Jonah's holding a mirror up to ourselves as well. We begin to see our own sin and our own story. So let's like take for a moment Jonah's anger in Jonah chapter 4. 
Jonah has an idea, like his own idea, of what God is supposed to do. And when God doesn't perform the way Jonah wants, but performs the way he knows God is going to, Jonah becomes angry. And this idea of anger is mentioned at least six times in that one short chapter. And God's response to Jonah is this, is it right for you to be angry? I don't know about you, but I have a tendency, like in my life, if somebody asks me, how are you doing? Like when I go home, my wife asks, how are you doing? There's two answers, because I'm a guy. The answers are, today was fine, or, and I'm really mad about something, right? I'm either fine or angry. Well, anger, like what do we do with anger? Anger actually is kind of like the engine, check engine light in your car, right? Anger is like this diagnostic tool within our bodies that informs us that something is not right. Something's wrong. Something is off. Anger has a purpose, just like your check engine light in your car. But just like your check engine light in your car, how many of you get that and you're like, okay, great, there's something wrong with my car. What is it? What's wrong with my car, right? Anger is kind of the same way. It's this great diagnostic tool that tells us something's not right. But anger doesn't tell us specifically what is wrong. And the truth of the matter is that we have a tendency to assume that anger is informing us that something is wrong on the external, right? When I'm angry, it's got to be something out there. The truth of the matter is that a lot of times the anger is revealing that there's something not right within us. And that's the truth for Jonah as well. Jonah's angry, but God's not the problem. God's mercy isn't the problem, right? It is an internal issue for Jonah. And maybe more than ever in our culture today, you think about whether it's on social media or driving or the news or within families, whatever the case might be, like we meet anger with anger because the, the, the problem is always external. I'm angry and it's this person's fault. I'm angry and it's that person's fault. And what Jonah tells us to do, what Jonah challenges us to do, if we're paying attention, it challenges us to slow down and to identify the anger, to, to not dismiss it, right? But to identify the anger and then spend some time of reflection and asking, where is the issue here? Is it really out there? Or is there maybe something going on within me that needs to be fixed, that needs to be changed? The other thing that's interesting about Jonah to me, I, I have this tendency when I'm praying, I'm trying to let go of this a bit. I have this tendency to pray for clarity. And clarity for me is usually a control issue, right? It's, it's I want to do things my way, but like I want to be in control. I want to know exactly how things are supposed to line out. I want God to just tell me what to do. The thing is, is if I'm honest with myself, usually I know what it is that I'm supposed to do, right? And I think for many of us, God, God just tell me what to do. And in truth, we already know. We know God well enough to know in this situation, this is how I'm to respond. It's just often, it's not what we want to do. The question isn't, is God telling us what to do, but are we willing to do it or not? Jonah knows exactly what he's supposed to do. He just doesn't want to do it. Jonah knew what to do because he knew who God was. Jonah had tasted the goodness of God, right? 
Jonah knew that God is a gracious God, that he's slow to anger. He tells us that much in Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah tastes that. He wants it for himself, but he falls into the same trap that we've been reading, out, reading about throughout the Old Testament. It's the trap that Adam and Eve fell into all the way back in the garden. They had tasted God's goodness, but it wasn't enough for them to know God and to know his goodness. They wanted to be God themselves, and it's the same for Jonah. He had tasted God's goodness, but he wanted to know, he wanted to be the one to determine who got God's goodness and mercy and compassion and who didn't. It wasn't enough to know God, but Jonah wanted to be God. And so we find at the end of this story that Jonah is mad that God had left the 99 for the one, blind to the fact that in the process he himself has become the one. The tables for Jonah are completely turned at the end of this book. Jonah is the older brother from the story of the prodigal son before we knew there was an older brother. Jonah is the Grinch before the Grinch. He's angry and mad at at God for his mercy, love, and grace because he is blind to his own desperate need for it. Jonah's sitting on this hill. Like the image just, it's hilarious, right? It's, It's funny if you imagine it. Jonah's sitting on this hill, pouting, just awaiting the destruction of Nineveh, right? He's sitting there like, just, I want to see what happens in Nineveh, right? Like, at some point, they're going to break, and they're going to be destroyed. He's sitting there waiting for the destruction of Nineveh, all the while blind to the destruction that's happening already within him. Jonah wants to see Nineveh descend into hell without realizing that he himself is already there. Jonah knew God. He knows God's character, but Jonah's unpracticed in his ways. He knows the truth of God, but he's yet to discover the beauty of God. He knows the truth of God. He knows that God's merciful and he's slow to anger, but he's failed to see the beauty of that graciousness and that slowness to anger. Because Jonah has this limited imagination of how God might make things right. Our sense of justice at times puts us at odds with God because we have these tiny imaginations about what justice can look like. And the beauty of God blows that out of the water. Each one of us, like Jonah, get to choose heaven or hell every day. Maybe even moment, every moment. And the question is, are we going to live according to the kingdom of God? Are we going to have imaginations big enough to live according to the kingdom of God? Are we going to live according to the kingdom of ourselves? And what Jonah demonstrates for us is that in navigating the difference between heaven and hell, obedience itself isn't enough. That there's more that has to happen. This isn't like a dutiful existence. God calls us to desire the things of him not just for ourselves, but for the entire world, for the renewal, not just of ourselves, but for the renewal of the whole world. For us to experience heaven every moment requires this inner transformation, right? Jesus would talk about it as this new birth, that we must be born again, that we must learn how to live and see 
these entirely different ways that are born within our heart. Paul calls it this idea of the circumcision of the heart, that it's not an outward sort of obedience, that it's this inward transformation that must take place. Every one of us this morning, everybody that we come into contact with, at some point in our lives, we have been Ninevites, right? We've been enemies of God. We've been on the other side of things, right? And God's pursued us. We've all been Ninevites, but we don't all have to be Jonah's. The story begins and ends for Jonah with the choice between heaven or hell. God even goes as far as providing a fish to deliver Jonah and then a plant to shade him. And the issue is whether Jonah accepts that choice or not, right? Nina asked a couple of weeks ago, and John referenced it last week, uh, this question that like hit me when Nina said it. I texted her afterwards. I was like, I needed to hear that. And the question was this, are you letting Jesus love you? Are you allowing Jesus to love you? And this week, the question that Jonah poses to us is, are you allowing Jonah to love others? Or, I'm sorry, are you allowing Jesus to love others, right? And it doesn't matter whether we allow it or not. I mean, Jesus loves others. But are we allowing that? And the thing is, as I was, always, as I was thinking about these two questions, you can't have one without the other, right? It's really difficult for us to love others when we're not allowing Jesus to love us. And Jesus has said, if you don't love others, then my love isn't in you as well. These two go hand in hand. Are you letting Jesus love you? Are you letting Jesus love others? If Jonah ended at the end of chapter 3, right, this, this book would be about the Ninevites and their redemption. But we have chapter 4, right? And the good news of the book of Jonah isn't primarily that Jesus loves, that God loves the Ninevites, right? The great news for us isn't that God loves even the Ninevites, even the evil Ninevites. It's that God loves even the Jonas of the world, right? And for you and me, as we live in ways where we wrestle with hate and we wrestle with anger and we wrestle with our own ideas of justice, God loves even us. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, like there's this consistent theme that we see over and over and over again. It's this, this theme of journey and of going. God is consistently telling people to go. And when God is telling people to go, it's always in the direction of blessing others. God is always telling people to go, and it's always in the direction of blessing others. And this pursuit to blessing others is the greatest example or representation of that transformed life. And there's no better evidence for us, there's no better example for us of this than the journey that Jesus took to the cross for each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we sang earlier, uh, we could run away and you will never leave, but you are right by our side. Or there's some of us this morning that have run from you in a number of different ways, and maybe it's not even outwardly, but it's like this inward running away. It's this refusal to love or forgive somebody else, or a refusal to love or forgive 
ourselves. And so, God, we proclaim that you will never leave. You are always right by our side. God, you're right by our side this morning. And we also proclaimed we need you. God, we need you every step of the way. God, this morning I pray for us as we come up for communion, not necessarily that you'll give us clarity about what to do. God, I have a sense. Most of us already know that. Maybe there's somebody this morning that knows precisely God, what you've been called, calling them to do. And there's just been resistance for whatever reason. And Lord, we, may, we are so good at self-justifying those reasons. So God, maybe it's not clarity that we need, but it's strength. God, transform our hearts, soften our hearts. God, allow us to see this world through your eyes, to see ourselves through your eyes, to see others through your eyes. Because you invite us every day to live in your kingdom instead of our own. God, knowing that to do so is choosing heaven instead of hell. Give us the strength to do that. Father, nudge us, draw us closer to you. Pray this in your name.